Have any of you been keeping up to date with the US presidential campaign election stuff? <laughs> I haven't really myself, that doesn't really matter, but it's, it's been quite hard not to notice or hear about all the controversy that's been going on, not just with one particular Republican candidate, but on all sides of the campaign. Men and women going head to head striving for the American public votes. But who do you believe? A lot like politicians or elections in our day, it's hard sometimes to believe anyone. Do they really mean what they say? Will they really fulfil the promises that they make? It's not true just in the sphere of politics, but we seem to live in an age where we're very sceptical of lots of things and lots of people what they may say. What is it then that causes us to have confidence in someone? What makes someone trust in another person to fulfil what they say or to do a task? What gives you confidence that a job will be done better by this person than by another person? Is it their character, perhaps? Or their credentials, their qualifications, those things are important. Maybe their track record, past experiences. Can they prove from history that they will do what they say? I've been on on two very different types of holiday to Greece. One to Cyprus with Thomas Cook. One to Catalonia with Thomson. And, yeah, both experiences were were very different. And when I arrived in Cyprus with Thomas Cook, my suitcase came around the carousel in the airport but it was all ripped, ripped up. It was open and obviously had, something had happened. And my clothes were hanging out. Suitcase was unusable, so I had to transfer my clothes to a very large plastic bag until I bought a new one. And we arrived at the hotel and there was no air conditioning. I don't do well in hot weather. Not, not enough pillows in the room. But the reception weren't very sympathetic with my concerns. However, my holiday in Catalonia with Thompson was the complete opposite. The hotel had air conditioning, but more than that, the customer service was excellent. So one day we went on a coach tour around the island, and I realised that we weren't going to get back to the hotel for our evening meal. We were running late. And so I went to the front of the coach to share my concern, and the tour guide said to me, don't worry about it, sir. We have already arranged a taxi to meet us halfway around the island, he will then take you the rest of the way around the island to a shortcut and you will get to your hotel in time for your meal. Yeah. Very impressed. Without us even asking, they had anticipated the problem and solved it. So when it comes to, maybe in the future, booking another holiday to Greece, which company will I go with? Will it be Thomas Cook or Thompson? And as the BBC would say, there are other holiday companies available. Of course, it's Thompson, because they had, to me, had a great track record. And it's amazing the difference that a good track record makes as you make decisions to think about the future. It's good when it comes to job applications. It gives an athlete confidence to enter a race if he has a good track record. And of course, it helps the public to have confidence in politicians if they have a good track record too. But what about when it comes to God 
and trusting him, having confidence in him, having faith that he will do what he says. He's told us what he will do in chapter 2, but can we believe it? Well, God's word should be sufficient for us, of course. But God's track record is also wonderful proof that God will do what he says he will do, and he will triumph in it. At the beginning of Habakkuk, if you were here, if you weren't here, um, look back at chapter 1. Habakkuk begins with this complaint. Why, why is God allowing the sin of his people to go on? Why doesn't he do something about the righteous who are suffering? How can he allow the wickedness just to go on and on? God then responds to Habakkuk in verse 6, and he says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, this ruthless and impetuous people. And this then just confuses Habakkuk even more. And so he has a second complaint in chapter 10, verse 12. He doesn't understand why God is going to use an even more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation. It doesn't make sense to him. Well, as we saw last week in chapter 2, God then responds. He says that he will have justice. That all wicked will be punished. All those who, who have sinned will not get away with it. No one will be able to escape God's wrath when it comes. And God speaks this revelation. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. So God's final judgment will come and of all the kingdoms of all the world they will all fall but as we saw last week one kingdom will remain only one will stand the kingdom of God the kingdom of Jesus Christ a kingdom full of people who are righteous but righteous because of their faith in Jesus Christ the only righteous person who has ever lived so that was God's Revelation, And so in chapter 3, we now get Habakkuk's response, Habakkuk's prayer to, to what God has shown him. He's heard of what God has done, this prophet, prophecy has been written down on a tablet. And, and some think that he's maybe also received a vision from God. God has shown him a quick whistle-stop tour of history and shown him what God has done for his people in the past. Shown his deeds, his track record. And Habakkuk records it for us um, in chapter 3. But he opens with this, this initial response, this prayer, this prayer of worship. If you look at verse 1. A prayer of adoration, of praise to God. It's a prayer, but it's also a song. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionioth. Well, however you say that. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> well, it may probably is a musical term of some sort, and it may well simply mean to be played on string instruments. If you flick right over to the very end of the book, end of chapter 3, we see there for the director of music, on my string instruments, possibly. Well, as we get into this chapter and look at Habakkuk's prayer, his response to what God has done, what can we learn? How should we approach God? How should we view the church 
thinking back to week one and possibly what God is doing in the church. How should we face the world around us, a world that's in opposition to God? Does Habakkuk have things to, to teach us? If we are people who are wanting to, like Habakkuk, live righteous lives, trusting in Christ, but doing that in the face of opposition and doing that in the face of a compromising church, what do we learn? Well, I think broadly two things. Firstly, worship. Our response should be worship. We'll get into what all that means. Worship the Lord for what he has done. So you're thinking of what God has done in the past. But then secondly, from that, trusting in the Lord for what then he will do now, but also in the future. So how do we live? How do we live in the light of God's justice? Through history, what he promises to do in the end, and now. Let's read from the beginning again, chapter 3. Verse 2. Lord, I heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk begins with adoration, with praise, as he responds to God. But what leads him into praise and adoration? It's his recollection, his vision of what God has done from verse 3 onwards. Habakkuk worships in response to what God has done as he remembers his great works. We'll not go into too much detail on all these verses, but scan through them again with me. I don't know if you, as you heard it being read, did any of the scenes, any of the pictures that we heard, did they ring bells to any of the events in Old Testament history that you know of? Verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. You probably don't know, but Paran and Temen, they are places and locations near Mount Sinai. Paran was even another name for Sinai. Mount Sinai, what happened there? What do we see there? Well, verse 4 to 6 describes the scene of Mount Sinai. His splendor was like the sunshine, the sunrise rather. (laughs) Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Verse 6, he shook, he stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the old age hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. This is the scene when God meets with his people. They've just come out of Egypt. They've just come through the Red Sea. They've arrived at the Mount of Zion. And God has come down. He's come down to make a covenant with his people. He's come down to call them to follow him to be his special people, to live holiness. And if you read Exodus 19, where this is recorded, you get this incredible picture of the mountain that's on fire, thunder and lightning that are striking, and the mountain shakes when God speaks. This is an incredible incredible picture of, of the power of God. His people have already seen it through the plagues in Egypt, and through the dividing of the Red Sea. And all of these scenes, and all of these rumours that were travelling far and wide, were enough to make any nation tremble. 
Who is this God, the Lord of Israel? We thought about the, the destruction of the Egyptians, the whole mighty powerful army that was just destroyed and wiped out in the Red Sea. And Habakkuk here asks some rhetorical questions in verse 8. He says, Were you angry with the rivers? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? What's the answer? No. This is no war between simple pagan gods, the god of the sea and the god of the sun. Pagan nations would worship creation, but here we have the true god, the god of creation, using creation as his weapon against his enemies, the true power of the true God. And Habakkuk is seeing this, seeing God's work in history. But it's not just at Sinai that he sees this, but there are glimpses of Joshua when he goes into the land, for example. Do you remember Joshua 10? The fighting and the sun and the moon stand still. Verse 11. There are allusions to the judges, to those very first leaders of the nation when they got into Canaan. Verse 7 describes the scene with Othniel. Verse 14 describes Deborah. These are all judges, people who led the country. Time after time, God comes and he judges his enemies. And time after time, God saves and delivers his people. And so as Habakkuk sees these events in history, time after time, he sees that God has proved himself to be the true, the sovereign God, the just God, the one who destroys his enemies and rescues his people. I'm sure Habakkuk would have been familiar with these histories. He would have read them in the words. But now he's got a glimpse of them in a vision. And as he recalls God's work, what's his response? It's worship. Thanks, it's praise, it's adoration, it's standing in awe of God, of who he is and what he's done. And so when we face uncertainty about the future, the past helps. What God has done in the past should give us confidence about how we face the future. So as Christians, we too can read the Bible. We too can recall all of these events throughout history. And even more so, as Christians, we can look back to the Lord Jesus and we can look back to the cross and the resurrection, the greatest work of God in history. And what is our response? Well, worship, praise and adoration. It's thanks to God for what he has done. But what about now? What about your life, day by day? Your history? Do you recognise, do you notice the times when God is at work in your life? Do we acknowledge it? Do we see it? It's hard to do that. Living in the West, we can easily fall into the trap that Everything is because of us. It's because of our own efforts. You know, we are as we are and we have everything we have each day because it just happens. 
We don't need God. And so we don't pray. We have homes. We have families. Most of us have jobs, reasonable health, and so compared to many others in the world, we have everything we need. Simple provisions for them are miracles. A bit of food each day, even living each day. But for us, we don't give it a second thought. But what if, if it is God who provides and sustains and gives us everything we have, what if we were to acknowledge these things from him? What if when we said grace before our meal, we really meant it? And we took it seriously rather than it just rolling off our lips? That God is providing for us. What if we saw God's grace in people's lives? What if we were to share answers to prayer and not just share requests for prayer? To rejoice together, to, to share in one another's testimonies. <coughs> Because God is living. He's a living God. He's active and he is at work. And so let's be Christians who encourage one another. Let's be people who look, notice what God is doing. And let's share with one another and give thanks for what God is doing. It's hard and it's unnatural. But when we do that, when we take our eyes off our problems and look to God and what he's doing, it does lead to greater faith. But firstly, it leads to worship, as it did for Habakkuk. His opening lines, verse 2, Lord, I've heard of your fame, I've seen all you've done, and I stand in awe of your deeds. And then he prays that God would do them in his day. Because he knows he has them in history, he's confident that God can do them again. And it's wonderful, as you read through Habakkuk, you really see a change in Habakkuk. Have you noticed that? Compared to his complaining and his questions and his doubts and concerns in chapter 1, here in chapter 3, after seeing and hearing from God, he's different. He's been humble before God. He's still in a difficult position, he still has all his problems, but he is in wonder of what God has done. He praises him for it. And as he stands in awe of God, if you look at verse 16, his reaction is almost is physical. <laughs> his heart pounds, his lips quiver. There's this awe and this fear and reverence of God. His legs are trembling. Habakkuk had not understood God before. He had not known why God was doing what he was doing. He didn't understand the injustice that was going on. But through Revelation, Habakkuk has seen God in a new light. His understanding has deepened. His attitude has changed. And we're going to think more about this change in Habakkuk next week. We'll specifically look at him and himself as a God changing him try and make it a bit more personal next week. But this evening, what about us? What about, for example, times when we do come to sing and praise God through song on our stringed instruments? On Shin Shignoginot. <laughs> can, you can imagine if this is a prayer and a song Habakkuk has written, he's taken it to his 
musicians and he said, let's sing this together. Listen to what I've heard and seen from God and let's respond in song and praise. When we come to sing praises, we don't just do it because we like music. We come because we've got something to praise. Someone to praise. Something to sing about. And we do that to God. We sing praises to Him. But we also come together and we encourage one another. We share together. We remind each other of the gospel. And we join as His people in response. I'm sure you've seen those scenes in the town centre after a football match. A local team has won and the fans are together and they've had a few drinks and they spill out of the pub onto the road arm in arm and they're What are they doing? Well, they're singing and they're shouting praises to their team for the great victory that's just been won. Now, when we come, we don't sing as drunken drunken people, (laughs) but our response is to a much greater victory, a great victory of Christ and the cross and the resurrection. As we recall God's works, as we remember his track record, as we worship him for what he has done, this then helps us to trust him. As we face difficulties, as we face uncertainty, we can trust in the Lord for what he will do, how he will respond. Habakkuk worships and praises And this leads him to talk about how he will live in the light of Revelation. Let's go down to verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. Though there, is, there are no sheep in the sheepfold, and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the height. And this is a glorious end to a really tough prophecy. All ends well. Habakkuk has had his head lifted from his struggles, from his depression of his circumstances. He's lifted high to see God. To see who he is and his great works. His faithfulness in his justice time and time again. He moves from as he was at the beginning. As he says, how long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen. Or cry violence. And you do not save. But now. In verse 16. He says I will wait. Patiently. I will wait for the day of calamity to come. He's waiting for God. He's trusting in God. What does waiting for God mean? Well, it means that it's not about Him. It's not about what He wants at His time and His way. 
but it's submitting to God, to his program, to his time. It means that he's not seeking vengeance. Allowing God to have vengeance in his way and in his time is hard to do as well. If you drive and you know what it's like when a driver comes along and he cuts you up, what do you want to do? Well, you want to chase him down the road. You want to blast your horn. You want to tailgate him. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But in, in this serious sense, what about when we see, as we noted last week, people who have no care for God, people who live in complete opposition to him, but just get, yet get away with it. Or when the students' union closes down a CU mission, or when well-known atheists call Christians evil. Or when certain groups of people demand the removal of religion from school and want in its place anti-biblical worldviews and lifestyles being taught. Does it, not want, does it not make you want to cry out, No, vengeance! What are you doing, God? But to wait... To trust God in the midst of these circumstances. It means to wait for Him to answer, for His time. It means that we believe that He is in control. Though Christianity may be removed from schools, although it may be hard, although we face opposition, although Christians are living as hypocrites, to wait means we have faith, knowing that God will not be defeated. The church will not die. That Jesus' name will not be squashed out. We rest in him. And as you rest and trust in him, it means that we can rejoice. It means that we too can lift our heads and look to him. We, like Habakkuk, will still live in the midst of pressures and struggles and, and trials. We, will still have, we still have to wait for that final day. And although our circumstances don't go away, our perspective, our attitude, our response to them can change. And so as Habakkuk says in verse 17, as he describes his situation, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes, olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep and no cattle, yet... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Though Judah is expecting Babylon to come and destroy it, it is already suffering barrenness and lifelessness. But despite his suffering, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk's not finding his joy and his hope or his happiness, his meaning, his purpose in life, in his circumstances, but he's finding it in the Lord, who is above it all. And he can rejoice. How can he rejoice? Because it is God who strengthens him. He is the sovereign Lord who gives him strength and enables him to look to him to be able to see his circumstances in a different light 
And although it looks bleak, although the future is uncertain, God is still God and God is still his saviour and he will deliver him. Whether that be in his life or whether that will be at the end of the day, at the end of time. God will deliver. And so to rejoice in the Lord and to wait upon him in our own strength of course is impossible. Because our circumstances still remain. Our suffering is not easy to manage. And we lack the power in ourselves to change it. For we believe in a God who does not change. Who has been and is faithful throughout history. He is the one who has all the power and can defeat all our enemies and can deliver us from all issues and problems. One of our elderly and frail old people in the church said to me this week that as we look back at God's track record, as it were, of what he has done in our lives through history, all that experience of God's faithfulness, it helps. It changes perspective in the frustrations and the difficulties of life. And it gives you confidence that he's with us and that he'll help us to the end. God gives strength in the midst of trial. He helps us look through different glasses, joy glasses, as we thought about before Christmas. I like a deer. Imagine a deer leaping around and it bounds to the height of the mountain. This illustration of verse 19. He's high above the valleys. He's, he's not bogged down in the mist of the fog of the, of the valley. But he's high above. But more than that, he's in a place where he can see. He can, all things are visible. He can see things from a different perspective. God is his strength. And so rejoicing in the Lord means that we trust, we trust him with our thoughts and with our feelings. We trust him to, to be the focus of our minds. For him to be the content of our conversations. That we don't complain every time, all the time. But that we bring our complaints to him. And we remember who he is. We remember what he's done. And that helps us to know him in the now. Have you noticed when you hear the testimonies of those who suffer as Christians, have you noticed that it seems that the more they suffer, the greater their joy? Think about the Apostle Paul in Acts 16. He and Silas are in Philippi, preaching the gospel, and then they get arrested. They get dragged to the marketplace. They get stripped. They get beaten with rods. And they get thrown into prison. And what's their response? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. Their response was worship, was praise, was song, was prayer. To trust in the Lord for what he will do means we need to wait on him and rejoice in him. Habakkuk, he was changed by his situation. How did he get there? He humbled himself before God. He took his eyes off himself. 
He looks to his God. And so as we view the world through his lens, as we recall God's perfect track record, we too can praise him. We can respond in worship, which then will lead to a life of trusting in him, waiting on him, rejoicing in him, as we too wait for the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who has a perfect track record, that you are faithful and have been faithful throughout history. And our today, thank you that we can look at our own lives and we can see how you have been at work encouraging us and shaping us and providing for us and saving us. And Lord, as we face difficulties in life, as we think of the big picture of our nation and of our time in the West, as we think perhaps of the time when you may be disciplining the church, as we face opposition in the world, how do we respond? May we respond in worship as we recall who you are, as we see what you've done, as we hear the promises of what you will do in your great justice. May that give us confidence to rejoice in you and to wait on you. Father, we give ourselves into your hands and we we trust you, we thank you and praise you. And help us now as we respond in song and praise to you. Amen.